the 21st of September 1978. An attempted robbery at a Pran Tats Lotto agency leaves one woman dead. She would be the first victim of serial killer Paul Stephen Hay. Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Happy New Year. I hope this one will be good. (laughs) Good for you all. Finally, the island is back and I must say it was a good break over the festive season. Not only did I get to catch up with the lovely Kate and sort out some wedding stuff. Yes, wedding stuff. But I've been busy getting the YouTube channel ready for launch. So look look out for that soon. So let's get stuck into it because this script ended up being a bit longer than I thought it would be. Now, most of this will be from court records, and I will either read directly from them or adapt them, of course, to make it easier for us all to understand the story. The other documents I will reference are this Hayes' own manuscripts. The first one's called Victims, Friends, Associates, Witnesses, Histories and Characters, and the other one is The House of Blue Light. Now, this Paul Stephen Hay. Yes, he is a serial killer, but not in the usual quiet guy next door type of killer with a distinct MO. Rather, he killed while committing armed robberies. He killed trying to cover up some of his past crimes. And then he even killed when in prison doing time for those murders. What's a little bit different in what I'll talk about today is that Hay wrote extensively about the killings and I'll be reading his quite twisted view on events as I go. Hay was born on September the 5th, 1957 in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. He was adopted out at three months old and after primary school, he attended Swinburne, Swinburne Technical School, leaving in second form or year eight as we tend to call it now. His schooling in early years is described in a history taken by a Dr. Skinner. Dr. Skinner says his primary school years were good. He said he coped well at school and there were no particular behavioural problems. He considers that his problems began in secondary school. He described a difficult period in his teen years when he was pressured to conform. He believes he was immature and not ready for secondary school life. He said his parents had not prepared him. He was bullied and tried to compete. He tried to get on with girls but he was unpopular as he was regarded as a dork and he had few social skills. Some of his friends from the primary school had accompanied him to the same secondary school. He achieved well in primary school, but in secondary school did not apply himself, and he finished school and his education in year 8. At the beginning of year 9, he was sent to an institution, and at that time he was breaking into kiosks on railway stations and failing to attend court. 
In the institution, he was again at the bottom of the pecking order and found it hard. He absconded from the juvenile institution and then was placed in high security. The staff in the high security institute had a different attitude. He was required to scrub floors with jacks and, well, jacks is, I don't know if you get it everywhere in the world, but it's uh, cleaning powder. He had to scrub the floors with jacks and clean toilets and he was not given privileges such as cigarettes or television. I mean, (laughs) he's only 14 and he didn't have cigarettes. Oh my God. He was punished by having to face the wall. Stupidly, he became involved in a plot to escape. He hit an officer on the head with a chair and this made him unpopular with staff as it would. For punishment, he was given servery duties and had to scrub floors. As a youth, he made stupid choices. I mean, we all make stupid choices, especially as a youth, but it looks like he was particularly stupid. So, at about 13 years old, and he's left school. Now, Hayes already started to become, okay, inverted quotes, troubled youth, rebelling against what he saw as restrictive parents. So he sent to a youth training centre, and I guess youth training centre, you could read that as criminal breeding ground. And that was at the age of 14. Here he got to meet and learn from other troubled troubled youths <laughs> and his criminal lifestyle, lifestyle escalated. From there, I'll get it out eventually. But yeah, like I'm, I'm calling it troubled youths. I'd like to say maybe a bunch of rat bags, but I guess some of them, you know, weren't as bad as others. So he was one of the worst. Later in life, Hay made contact with his biological family, and although I have no real information on how that went down, he did not maintain a relationship with them. Education-wise, Hay would start apprenticeships, but not complete them. And whenever he wasn't in jail, he took semi-skilled jobs, supplementing his income with break-ins and general thieving. He took drugs, he sold drugs, he had antisocial tendencies, and was an all-round scumbag. Now, here's a list of some of his offences that he committed between 1970 and 1979, when he was aged between 12 and 21. Now, in each of these categories, he did commit multiple offences. So that was larceny of bicycles and cars, break-ins and stealing, unlicensed driving, assault by kicking, assault occasioning actual bodily harm, behaving in an offensive manner in a public place, escaping from legal custody, and possession of a restricted substance and supplying a restricted substance, i.e. drugs. So yeah, not exactly a model citizen, but at this stage he could be considered more of an asshole than anything else. But things would soon change. Now, before we get to what happened later... In 1975, Hay met a Robert Wright at the Young Offenders Division of Pentridge Prison while serving a six-month sentence. Later, they would both end up at a youth training centre in Malmesbury, where they both cut and ran from. Hay stayed with one of Wright's older sisters, where he would meet other criminal types. In 1978, after serving a sentence, well, sentences for a load of armed robberies, Hay was granted parole. It wasn't long, in fact only two weeks, before he got back into his criminal ways and on the 21st of September 1978, 
Hay would enter a tax lotto agency at Chapel Street, Pran, just south of the Melbourne CBD. I'll read Hay's own words on what happened. This agency was not originally going to be held up. Rather, I was intending to assault the money bearer as the takings were transferred and obtain the spoils in this fashion. As I became impatient, I later decided to dispense with the pugilism and to extract the takings at gunpoint. The weapon used in this hold-up was a sawn-off double-barreled shotgun. It was a 12-gauge. I'm not familiar with the different sorts of shot, and so I can only say the projectile was not as solid. The only term I know, but rather what I think is called buckshot, or the little pellets. On the occasion, only one barrel was discharged. On the day in question, after completing preparations, I walked along Chapel Street until I came to the Tats Lotto Agency. The description of events hereafter will be as clear as I'm able to make them, though I must emphasise that several factors weigh against the complete picture being given. These are fear at the time and an aberrant psychological state that ensued on things going wrong. I entered the agency with a gun in the bag. I recall I had the butt covered with something. I think that to my right on entering there were benches, and I vaguely recall there being a customer at this bench. I approached the counter where a woman was working and then produced the shotgun. I think I thrust a garbage bag at her or the carrier bag and said words to the effect of, Fill it, cunt, the money. The woman looked at me without responding, and rather than fulfil the demand, when she did move, she totally surprised me by turning towards a door that led from the shop and moving away from me towards it. I was confused by this. I was scared stiff to begin with. When this happened, some strange psychological state overtook me. It was as if everything started to slow down and go in slow motion. Also, colour and vision changed. Things became grey, and the events were vague, as if in a dream. I recall thinking, on the edge of this state, no, you're not sending me back to jail. I was then aware of the gun discharging and my ears ringing. Through the haze, I thought that I'd hit the woman, but could not be sure if this was the case. I thought perhaps it was in the arm, though I had no clear ideas on anything. Now, actually what happened here was the woman, 58-year-old Evelyn Adams, had turned and opened the office door to ask her manager what to do. Hay yelled, You mongrel dog! and shot her in the back of the head and then fled empty-handed. But let's go back to Hay's version of events. I then turned to flee, still in this state. I recall trying to put the shotgun back in the bag, but could not. Be it through haste or whatever, it would not fit. I think I kept a gun in my hand as I moved from the agency onto Chapel Street. I recall a woman screaming and think that it may have been a pedestrian who saw the gun in my hand. Things started to clear psychologically, though were by no means restored to normal at this point. I turned left and walked briskly up the street whilst trying to conceal the weapon. I walked through some lawn area, I think on a school or campus block, made my escape and disrobed. I was not sure I'd shot the woman until I later heard in the news that this was in fact the case. She'd been shot in the head and was dead. I then recall getting my hair cut and shaving in order to change my identity. So, 
Here Hay reckons that he's gone into some other mental state and that it was his fear of going back to jail and the woman not complying with his demands that he shot at her. And that one shot he, he tries to make out wasn't aimed, but it ended up hitting her in the head. So he's trying to lessen his culpability in the murder. I mean, it was this woman, Evelyn Adams, poor 58-year-old, who startled him, made him scared, didn't comply. So it was this reason that she ended up dead. Now, Hay has this thing where he can find reasons why he acts, through, though it's not his fault. Like going into the Tatslotto agency with a loaded shotgun to rob the place, but it's someone else's action that makes him act the way he does. Anyway, police were on the scene quickly, but Hay was able to get away. Now, police did suspect Hay at the time, but they weren't able to locate him. Then just two and a half months later, just after midnight on the 7th of December 1978, there would be a murder at a pizza place at North Road Caulfield South near Melbourne, in which the owner, 45-year-old father of two, Bruno Chingolani, would be shot and killed. In Hay's own words again, I plan to rub these premises at gunpoint from the outset. In fact, I recall it was on the same night that I robbed the Kentucky Fried Chicken store. As I was not content with the spoils from the Kentucky store, I decided to do another hold-up. As I drove down the road, I saw the pizza parlour and decided it would do. The car was pulled up a side street and then I got out. My description on the night was as follows. The weapon used on this night was a sawn-off single-barrel shotgun. It was a 12-gauge, and again, I used the term buckshot to describe the projectile. The gun was in poor condition, in that when it was cut down, the mechanical part slipped off the wooden part. This was the result of cutting through the bolt that goes into the butt. This caused me much concern after the robbery. I approached the pizza shop, and I recalled that when I was at the door... I pulled the stocking down over my face. I believe I had the gun secreted under my jacket. The proprietor, a foreigner, I recall his name being Signaloni or something, was behind the counter. I ran into the shop which was devoid of customers and jumped on the counter. I pointed the gun at the proprietor and I think I held out a bag telling telling him some such thing as fill it with the money, cunt. The proprietor became a bit flustered at this and said something to the effect, the money. He then dove towards a drawer and started to rummage furiously in it. I recall that I was very puzzled and wondered if he was in fact getting the money for me and was merely agitating through his fear. I found out, however, that he was not getting the money at all. The next thing I recall was that he pulled a very large knife out of the drawer and turned towards me. I was shocked by this. And then things started to go hazy again, as in the Tats Lotto. I recall that I had the gun aimed at his midsection and then through the haze there came a loud report as the gun discharged. And again, my ears rang. I recall a scream coming from the rear of the shop. It was a woman's voice. After the shot was fired, I felt the proprietor grab the gun. They shot at point blank range. He had not collapsed, but appeared to continue fighting. My impressions were vague once again. I wrenched myself free from the grip he had on the gun and jumped from the counter to flee. As I crossed the floor to the door, I felt something hit me in the back. I thought at first he'd thrown a knife at me. 
I arrived back at the car, my senses stopped reeling, and I'm looking at the gun. I was horrified to find that the barrel and all mechanical parts were missing. I then assumed, and do to this day, that the object which hit me in the back was in fact the barrel, etc. off the gun. I assumed that this came free when the proprietor grabbed at the weapon. I recall great concern over this, and I think it was due to the fact that I may not have had gloves on. I feared my prints would be all over the weapon, and therefore I was looking at a life term in prison. The proprietor did not die immediately, I recall, but rather a day or two later. I neglected to say at this time that I had a beard, cut close to the face. I shaved this off after the offence in order to change my identity. So Bruno was rushed to the Bethlehem Hospital and then transferred to the Alfred. He was expected to live, however, three days later he did pass away from his injuries. So at this stage, Hay has murdered two people while committing armed robbery, just weeks after being paroled for the same sort of crimes. Now this is also what Hay had to say about both those murders. These were the first two people I murdered, and both deaths occurred during the course of separate armed robberies that went wrong. In both of these hold-ups, I ended up suffering from an altered state of consciousness that was brought about by circumstances that arose during the course of each of the crimes. Evelyn Abrahams was my first victim. She was working in the Tats Lotto Agency and was, as far as I recall to know, a respectable spinster who was in her late 50s. Bruno Sinaloni was my second victim. He was the proprietor of the pizza parlour and was, as far as I recall and know, a respectable man of 45 who was married and had children. These people were going about their normal lives when I, a young criminal, killed them. I had no right being armed or on the premises with my unlawful intent, and I accept responsibility for my terrible offences. Well, what's fucked about these two murders is that he went in with a loaded weapon. He could have easily gone in with an unloaded gun and if things had not gone to plan, he could have just run off down the street. Neither of the victims threatened him in any way, other than maybe Bruno may have come at him with a knife, but that's to be expected, but he chose to pull the trigger and they ended up dead. Not only were the victims' friends and families affected, but all of their customers were also affected. All the people in the community came and bought stuff off them. They were quite popular people. So this really did affect a lot more people than just friends and family. And it was just so senseless. But his next killings, these are quite more complicated. So again, I'll read a lot of this from court records. Now it all started with the escape from prison of convicted murderer Robert Barry Quinn, who was serving a double life sentence for two murders he'd committed in 1974. Now, he was assisted in that escape by Robert Wright. Now, that's Hayes' good mate from Juvie, a bloke called Wayne Smith, and a woman by the name of Eva Carlson, who was the girlfriend of Quinn. Now, he's the convicted murderer. This Quinn guy also had a number of other girlfriends, including Cheryl Ann Gardner. And she, although not involved in the, the escape plan, became aware of the circumstances under which the escape occurred. I mean, (laughs) this convicted double murderer still has multiple girlfriends on the outside. I mean, you gotta, you gotta just laugh about that, don't you? Anyway, swipe left or right, I don't know. 
Anyway, Cheryl Gardner also visited Quinn at the campsite where he and Eva Carlson were hiding out. Now, for some reason, it was decided that Eva Carlson had to go. And by go, I mean die. This may have been because Quinn's other girlfriend, Cheryl, had turned up and there was some sort of jealous friction thing going on. Who knows? What ended up happening was that Cheryl Gardner and Robert Wright murdered Eve Carlson with Gardner apparently putting the first bullet into her. Later, Quinn and Gardner left the camp and travelled to Perth. Eva Carlson was not seen at any stage after they'd left the camp and eventually portions of her skeleton were discovered by police near the campsite many months later. It had become clear that Quinn, Gardner or Wright had murdered Eva Carlson. Quinn and Gardner returned to Melbourne over the Christmas period by train and this was in 1978, to allow Gardner to visit her young son, 10-year-old Danny Mitchell. So not only Robert Wright, which is Hay's mate, and Cheryl Gardner knew of the location of the campsite, but also Wayne Smith plus two other women, Debbie Veal and Lynn Bowles. They'd all assisted Quinn during his time on the run. They'd also visited the campsite and were aware of the location and the presence of Eva Carlson. Now, there was a fear that Wayne Smith, Lynn Bowles and Cheryl Gardner may not remain loyal to Quinn and Wright and may at some point reveal their knowledge of Eva Carlson and her death at that camp. So Quinn returns to Perth. He ends up staying at Cheryl Gardner's brother's house where he would end up being recaptured on the 25th of January 1979. Once Quinn was recaptured, only six people were aware of the location of the original campsite and the location of Carlson's body. You see, the police hadn't actually found those skeleton parts yet. Those people were Quinn, Wright, his girlfriend Debbie Veal, Wayne Smith, his girlfriend Lynn Bowles and Cheryl Gardner. Now that's a lot of people you hope can keep their mouths shut. So back to court records, and this is where Hay comes into the picture. On the 27th of June, 1979, Lynn Bowles, who was living in a de facto relationship with Wayne Smith, left her flat for the evening. Smith remained at home. On that same day, Hay and Wright met up with a man called Ernie Strahan that they'd both known for some time. Ernie in future testimony would say that he heard Wright tell Hay to put the business in the car. Ernie then saw Hay get a 22 rifle, put it in the car and grab some 22 bullets from the glove box. Shortly after this, Wright produced a .25 pistol. Hay, Wright and Ernie then visited two men at another place and the firearms were shown to them. After leaving there, Hay said, we'll go and see that Smith. When they got to Wayne Smith and Lynn Bowles' place, Hay and Wright left the car carrying both the .25 pistol and the .22 rifle. Hay went into the residence and a short time later Ernie heard shots. A loud bang from the .25 pistol followed by some rapid shots from the .22 rifle. When Hay returned to the car he threw the firearms into the back of it and drove to Lang Warren to the home of Wright's sister Marilyn where all three proceeded to invent alibis for a later stage. Wayne Smith was killed with a .25 bullet to the left side of his neck together with a number of multiple gunshot wounds from a .22 rifle. Now in regards to Wayne Smith's murder, I'll read out what Hay had to say about it. 
Wayne Smith was, in my experience, a chronic substance abuser and a regular thief who had, if I recall correctly, served at least one term of imprisonment. Though I didn't have enough reason to justify killing Smith, I still do recall having frowned on him for dumping me at a point during the aforementioned night we went to commit a burglary and for not giving me what I thought was a due share of the crime's profit. I can't say that he and I were close. I vaguely recall it being hypothesised that Smith was killed to silence him and that his assistance with hiding the escapee Barry Quinn during his flight from the law, but I don't personally recall this being spoken of as responsible in any way for his murder. I recall Wayne Smith was a few years older than me, and though my primary target for murder on the night of his demise was his de facto Lynette Bowles, I helped to kill Smith when she wasn't home. Now, this wasn't to be the end of the killings, there were still more people that knew about the Quinn prison break and ever Carlson's murder. Now, in mid-1979, Hay developed a friendship with a Lisa Maud Brearley on her return from Cooper Pedy. On the 18th of July, she applied for a shooter's license at the St Kilda Police Station near Melbourne. Now, that was issued, and some hours later, she and two unidentified men purchased a .22 rifle and then five minutes later returned to purchase a .22 semi-automatic rifle in East Bentley. Now those two identified men are probably Hay and Wright. Lisa bought these guns for Hay and Wright because they had more people they had to make sure kept their mouths shut. In July of 1979, Hay and Wright, in the company of a William O'Connor, spoke about both Gardner and Brearley, referring to Cheryl Gardner as the give-up, and told O'Connor that Gardner had given up right over the business involving Quinn, the escapee that had now been recaptured. Hay also indicated his concern about Lisa Brearley's loyalty in that she was refusing to go to police and tell them that the gun she'd purchased on his behalf had been stolen from the car. On the 22nd of July 1979, Cheryl Ann Gardner and her son, 10-year-old Danny Mitchell, were visiting a friend's flat, and after the film that they were watching on television had ended, they left the flat. They were never seen alive again. They were shot at Ripponlee at about 11.30pm that night. The police arrived at approximately 1.30am and found Gardner slumped behind the steering wheel of the car where she'd been shot in the head a number of times. Danny Mitchell, as I said, only 10 years old at that stage, had also been shot a number of times in the head and was found lying across the seat. All of the bullets found at the scene revealed that the shots were fired from a .22 weapon. At the time, Hay was renting a room in Carlisle Street, St Kilda, under the false name of Santos. Hi, Angela. The morning after Gardner and Mitchell were shot, he left the address without advising anyone of his new address. Again, in Hay's own words about Cheryl Gardner. Because of the extent of my devotion to Gardner and the things I did and risked for her, I was very upset when she told me that she'd apparently been lying to me, causing a rift between Robert Wright and myself, and also speaking loosely about homicides that I'd been involved in to a person who wasn't able to be trusted with this information. I felt deeply violated, and the depth of my displeasure and distrust was eventually shown in my act of taking her life. 
Now, in regard to 10-year-old Danny Mitchell, Hay had this to say. I met Danny when he was a youngster in 1975 when Robert Wright and I were absconders from the Malmesbury Youth Training Centre. I again met Danny a number of times upon my release from jail in 1978 and I eventually came to not like him very much when he was around nine years old. Also, with a mother like Cheryl Gardner, his chances of becoming a saint were reduced. I vaguely recall, even at this tender age, he had snuck a smoke of dope when his mother had had it, and I have a dim recollection of other problems. I can also see that my own lack of maturity could have contributed to not being partial to Danny. It appears that Cheryl Gardner came to learn that she was in trouble with Robert Wright and me before the night of her demise. So in my opinion, it was irresponsible of his gangster mother to keep Danny with her when she knew of the problems she had. Rather than move her son away to stay with his grandmother or someone else whilst Gardner was apparently in danger or flee with him to some place more distant and safe, it appears she tried to use Danny as a shield to try to dissuade people from harming her because of his presence. It was generally spoken as an underworld principle that children aren't to be killed, but obviously by Danny's unforeseen presence and sad demise, the gamble that Gardner took did not pay off. Not only did Gardner's life end, but the unfortunate circumstances of the situation meant that Danny, who knew both Wright and myself well, had to die also. There was no possibility of postponing the plan because of what and whom Gardner knew. Her knowledge of our deeds could put us behind bars and with help from her friends, there was the slimmer possibility that Wright and I could be harmed or killed. Though I didn't particularly like Danny, he had never done anything to merit the death at my hands. His murder is particularly tragic and certainly wasn't planned. I accept that I put the poor boy through the terrible ordeal of seeing his mother shot and then I robbed the boy of any sort of future life. Alas, nothing I say or have, do or will feel will change what happened to this youngster. Hmm, as you might start seeing here, is that Hay always has some reason why the killings he's done were because of something the victim did. It wasn't really his fault at all. Anyway, this is not the end of the killings, and by early August 1979, police had interviewed Hay over the Wayne Smith murder, but they released him. On the 7th of August 1979, Hay, Wright and Ernie Strahan were driving around together and then stopped to buy a red-handled knife and a cutthroat razor from a barber shop in Springvale. On the next day, Strahan and Wright joined Lisa Brearley, that's Hay's girlfriend, at his rented bungalow in Aspendale. When Ernie entered the house, he saw Hay and Lisa on the bed together. And get this, he asked Hay if he could fuck Lisa. Now apparently Hay did agree, but whether this happened or not, it's not 100% known because of what was to go down later that night. Wright announces that there's a party they could all go to, and all four of them left the bungalow. Lisa Brearley was the driver of one car with Hay sitting beside her. Wright drove his car with Strawn as a passenger. The convoy drove through the hills and during part of the travel there was a swapping over of cars and drivers as it was raining and boggy. At one stage the car became bogged and Lisa Brearley became frightened of Hay's behaviour as he threatened her on the journey. 
She told Strawn that she was scared and kept saying to the three men, I didn't do anything. I didn't tell on them. I haven't done anything. Hay took hold of Lisa Brearley, walked with her a short distance away from the cars and he had with him one of the knives. Strawn then heard a gurgling sound. When Hay returned to the car where Wright and Strawn were, he said, You should see her. I stabbed her about 40 or 50 times. Hay had blood all over his chest and sprayed in his face. Wright and Strawn helped Hay move the body. Now, Strawn saw that the body was a mess of blood and stab wounds. She was dragged to the side of the track and pieces of bark and bracken were thrown on top of a body in an attempt to conceal it. Strawn then drove her car back to Lilydale Railway Station and left it unlocked. Her handbag was still in the car. On the return trip, both Hay and Wright told Strawn to keep his mouth shut. Hay burned his clothing and then returned to the car and cleaned it for fingerprints. Ernie Strawn eventually spoke to police and told them about the murder of Lisa Brearley. He accompanied police to the area of Olinda and the body of Lisa Brearley was found. A post-mortem found that she had a minimum of 150 stab wounds. Fuck's sake. Now what Hay had to say about the murder of Lisa Brearley is shocking. Again, in his own words, leaving Lisa Brearley's past and what may have been my unfounded suspicion regarding her fidelity to me, her only wrong was to talk to her mother about having purchased semi-automatic twenty-two rifles for Robert Wright and myself. These ended up being used to kill Cheryl Gardner and Danny Mitchell, so Lisa Brearley became a loose end that had to be gotten rid of. Wright and myself did not want Brearley being able to say that Wright and myself were given the sort of guns that were used in a double murder, and the only way to assure that she did not speak further about the weapons was to take her life. Wright and myself tricked Lisa into purchasing the guns for us with a firearms license she got. We told Lisa that since our friend Wayne Smith had been killed, it would be good to have weapons around for protection in case they were needed. Wright's and my real plan for the guns was to use them on an armed robbery on a jewellery store, but the latter never occurred. After getting the guns, the plan was soon hatched to kill Cheryl Gardner, and the guns were used for that. The way Lisa Brearley died was cold and ugly. She was lured to the hills on the pretext of going to a party with Robert Wright, Ernie Strawn and myself. However, the only thing that awaited her up the dark forest track was rape and death. All three of us males knew that we were there to murder Lisa, but Strawn wanted to take advantage of her soon-to-be-deceased body before such became the fact. When we arrived at the bush track, one of my co-offenders asked if I was going to let the others use my girlfriend for sex. He asked me this shortly after I'd produced a knife and put it to her neck, so she was, by the appearance of the blade, clearly aware that things had suddenly become unfriendly. I answered the sexuality-interested man affirmatively, and she, with a cheap knife held against her, didn't make any protest at being talked about in such a way. What she wanted was irrelevant. I permitted the man to have sex with her, because if his semen was in her corpse, it was something he could reflect on if he later thought about telling the police of her murder. Furthermore, if her body was later discovered, semen in the corpse along with stab wounds, would be a deviation from our usual modus operandi. 
I hadn't known my girlfriend for long, but I experienced her as a kind-hearted and nice-enough lass. Unfortunately for her, because there wasn't a gun to shoot her with, a knife was used to take her life. This being the case, when the fellow who wanted sex with her had finished using her body to that end, I attacked her with the blade. Amazingly, it seemed, I stabbed her 157 times. I hadn't stabbed anyone to death before, and she didn't, as you might see in a movie, die after one blow with a knife. She fought surprisingly hard, and this fazed me. Because of this, when she was finally still, I decided to stab her more, in order to make sure she was dead. Her only real wrong was her honesty with her mother. That, in the murderer's context that Lisa was ignorant of, led her demise. Alas, I can't change the past. Right, that was pretty fucked up, and this guy really needs to be off the streets. And eventually, he would be arrested. Not for the first two murders, but for these murders. The murder of Wayne Keith Smith, Cheryl Ann Gardner, Danny William Mitchell, and this Lisa Maud Brearley. Now, in 1980, November 1980, he would be found guilty on four counts of murder. As I said before, he hadn't been busted for the first two murders he'd committed, but he did get life sentences for these four. While he was inside serving his sentence, he would confess to the first two murders, be charged and found guilty of those murders. That was Bruno Cingolani, 45, the pizza shop guy, and Evelyn Adams, 58, the tats lotto lady. At the time of the second trial, Hay also pleaded guilty to three counts of armed robbery and one count of malicious wounding. These crimes were committed between the 16th of October 1978 and the 6th of December 1978 and involved the armed hold-up of a railway station officer, a 7-Eleven store proprietor and the manager of a Kentucky Fried Chicken store. On the first occasion, Hay threatened his victim with a single-barrel shotgun while a co-offender beat the victim with a wooden club. On the second and third occasions, Hay used a single-barrel sawn-off shotgun. So that's six murders. And like I said at the start, this isn't the usual serial killer with an M.O. The first two victims were just going about their day at work when Hay decided he would rob them, and in the end he killed them. The other four were people he knew that he decided he had to kill to keep their mouths shut. Except for little Danny, Cheryl's kid, who had to, in Hay's mind, die because he witnessed his mum being killed. Yes, he is defined as a serial killer, but more of a twisted, violent fucking asshole. Now, when he's sentenced to these two lots of murders, he was sentenced to life. I mean, real life. Your whole life. So Hay is doing time when he kills again. This time it's his cellmate and sex offender, Donald Hathley. Hathley has discussed with Hay his wish to die and had attempted suicide on several occasions. Initially, Hay tried to talk him out of it. But then, not only did he, didn't he try to stop him, but he became determined to help him die. Hay and Hathley discussed the best way to do it, and after dismissing strangulation, they decided on hanging, and it would be carried out on the 14th of November, 1991. Hay scoped out the best place to perform the hanging, and it was decided to do it in Hathley's cell, after the evening meal, and before the 4.10pm lockup. Hay was able to get some nylon cord from the gymnasium and it would be strung over a plastic pipe that transversed the cell wall. They tested that it would take the weight and then Hathley stood on a small cupboard. 
Hay placed the noose around Hathaly's neck and tied his hands at the front, using Hathaly's spit to make it look like he'd tied it himself. Hay then pulled away the cupboard and Hathaly swung but wasn't dying. Hay rubbed his chest, telling him, Let go of your breath, my friend. Hathaly continued to take shallow breaths. So eventually Hay pulled down on Hathaly's torso. Finally, his airways was cut off and he died. At first, Hay wasn't suspected of any involvement in the hanging, but would ultimately be charged and convicted of murder. Following his conviction, Hay was sentenced to life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 15 years. Now, this being his first murder for which a non-parole period could be fixed, it didn't really matter because I'll spare you all the details about his applications to get his sentence determined, all this non-parole period and all this sort of stuff that he's had in court since. Suffice to say that he failed every time. And again, basically all the judges said he should be locked up until he dies as he was found to just be too dangerous to ever, ever let out. And that's a good change because as you know, many times I do get a bit ragey when the justice system is a little bit too lenient on people and they do get out and they kill more people. So Islanders, that was that was a bit of a long one for this first episode back. It could have been a lot longer, but um, like I said, I'm not going to go through all his applications in the court for his non-parole periods and all that. So what do you think of Hay? Hay himself puts all the blame onto his victims, even blaming Cheryl for using her son as a human shield knowing Hay was after her. I think he was just one of those very dangerous pieces of scum that appear every now and then. He he had absolutely no remorse because he thinks he did no real wrong and that he was forced into having to kill these people. The fact that he is never going to be released gives us some hope in the justice system. In fact, during one of the cases to get his sentence determined, he told the judge that he was a product of the justice system and it was... The judge was partly the blame for what he did. Well, the judge and the system built him into what he was. It was delusional like that Peter Japas scum. That case that I did a while ago, he just totally delusional as if it was everybody else. Well, that's the first episode in the can for 2020 Islanders. But before we get into the end of the show stuff, I want to do a little promo for Already Gone, hosted by my good podcaster friend Nina Instead who covers the old cold cases you may not be familiar with as well as the headline grabbing stories like the crash of Northwest Airlines Flight 255 and the work of Coral Watts a prolific serial killer known as the Sunday Morning Slasher. You'll not only find the content is very well researched but Nina has the calming voice the sort of voice that you would want over the emergency tannoy warning you have 30 seconds before self-destruct Believe me, you'll love her show. Now, you can find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favourite podcaster. Now, I will have one more promo for a podcast. It's a new one by my mate Mike Morford called Scene of the Crime that has just launched. And that's about the 2017 Delphi murders of Abby William and Libby German. So, listen in to the, the promo. I'll stick it on the end. So now for some Patreon shout-outs. Thanks to longtime listener Ted Perry. Boom fuckalunga, Ted. Sophie Phonander, welcome to the island and thank you. 
Escarin, Scarin or Escarin is up to her pledge as well. Thank you. Frederick Yell, thank you so much, Frederick. Dale Pennyquick upped his pledge as well. And I think I think we got Angela La. Angela R. Last episode I did the uh, shout-outs. As you know, True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported show. I don't like ads, unless it's something I know that you would find useful. And I would also 100% back, so <laughs> we haven't had any yet. To become a patron for as little as a dollar a month, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland and check out the rewards for the different levels. As I've been away, I'll be sorting out this month's rewards during this week, so if you qualify for a reward or you think you are, please just check out your email that I will send you. The sticker ones I just send out, I don't send emails, but for the other rewards, the mugs and t-shirts, I do send out emails, so check even your spam folder, okay? Also, if you'd like to help out, you can make a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash Island. You can get some merch at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Don't forget to buy the black mugs. I'll update the shop to very soon, and we're going to have a, a promo for a special T-shirt. All these links are at my website, truecrimeisland.com. If you want to contact me, just contact me. My email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. You can find me on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram very soon. I'll be on YouTube and other streaming websites, so look out for that. There's there are a few audio cases on there at the moment if you want to subscribe. But on launch date, we'll all be taken down and the new video show will start. And it's going to be very exciting coming in the next couple of weeks. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, Fagalanda. Coming up in Season 1 of Scene of the Crime, Delphi. Why Libby? Why Abby? Why Delphi? Those girls loved each other. They were good friends. Neither one of them left each other's side. Both those girls are heroes. Before the words came out, I knew. I knew this was not good. As soon as I saw that, I knew something really bad happened. The detectives were like, this is not going to take that long. It's a small town. Somebody's going to say something, and this is all going to be over soon. The first couple of weeks, that's what it felt like, is that any day now. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months. My biggest fear is that whoever did this would do it again. I don't want that to happen to another family, because I'm telling you, it's hell. There was no logical reason anybody would have known those girls would be there that day. Child abduction murders in and of themselves are incredibly rare, but the abduction of two children at one time is even rarer. I've only seen a couple in my entire career. There is a lot of crime scene evidence. Uh, Some of it is somewhat odd. Shortly after solving the Golden State Killer case, I did speak with an investigator that was involved with the Delphi murders. If you haven't walked across the bridge, you don't understand, right? Yeah, like that bridge is scary. It is scary. And those railroad ties are rotted. That bridge scares me. So for somebody to be able to cross it, he's moving well enough that he has to know the bridge. He's done that before. 
It could have been any one of our kids. It could have been anyone at the bridge that day. It's hard for me to believe anybody could do something so bizarre and horrible and not feel compelled to tell somebody about it. Those two young girls were everybody's daughter. I refuse to accept evil as a standard bearer in American society. I believe we're one piece of the puzzle away from figuring out who this individual is. To the killer who may be in this room. Do you want to know what we know? And one day, you will. You've just listened to a short preview of Scene of the Crime Season 1, Delphi. Be sure to subscribe right now wherever you listen to podcasts.